My name is Emmanuel Agbovi, and I'm an elder here at Christ Community Chapel, and I'll be reading today from Romans 4, verses 5. And to the one who does no work, but believes in the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Well, good morning and welcome to the weekend services here at Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad you're here with me. Whether you're here in the room or watching online or over in our East service, thanks for being here. Hey, if you were in the West service, you know that uh, Pastor Ray, who's planning the Grove in Shaker Heights, was our host. If you're in the East service, you don't know that, but he was. And uh, I wanted you to know something he did not tell you, okay? So even if you're in East, I want you to know this. And he, he, did a, he was a good soldier. He did what he was supposed to do. So let me throw in a little plug for him. In fact, if you have a piece of paper and a pen or your phone, however you take notes, would you jot this down for me really quickly? I want you to know on November 14th, okay, on November 14th, the Grove, our church plant in Shaker Heights, is going to have a preview service here in this building over in East Hall at 5 p.m. November 14th, that's a Sunday, at 5 p.m., the Grove is going to have a preview service here in East Hall uh, for them to practice and for you to check them out. And I want to personally ask you to go, okay, for two reasons. You might say, well, I don't live in Shaker Heights, and I'm not interested in going with the church plant. Well, first of all, you don't know what God has in store for you, Okay. So go and find out. Remember, part of being a Christian is our life belongs to him. So you and I are not in the business of saying what we are and are not going to do. Go and find out uh, what God might have for you. But here's the second thing. Let me tell you, as a guy who planted a church, you showing up at that isn't about whether you're going to go. It's about showing up, giving an hour of your time to tell the Burns family we're behind you. Ray and Nicole and their five kids, hey, we're praying for you. We love you. We got your back. You might even give a little to that church plant that night. I know it'll mean a lot to them, and I'll be there. And let me just be honest, it'll mean a lot to me if you're there. So I would love to pack that room out for them to have that great experience to energize their team. November 14th at 5 p.m. Ray didn't ask you, but I am. Please make sure you are there. Okay. Uh, I'm really excited to continue our sermon series through the book of Romans. We're calling it 10 sentences to change your life. That's because we're looking at 10 sentences in this book that we believe if we grab hold of them and understand them and lean into them, they will in fact change our lives. So I'm excited to keep that going. In fact, if you have a Bible, would you take that out and open it to Romans chapter four? We're gonna look at the fifth verse. If you have your phone, it's okay to pull that out and, and pull up Romans chapter four, verse five. If you're watching online, open Google and just Google Romans four, five and read along as we go through it. But as you're turning or scrolling or firing it up, uh, let me hold out to you an outline I wanna use to guide our time together as we think about this life-changing sentence. Three points and they go like this. I want to talk about a crazy idea a crazier idea, and how to know you're not crazy, okay? A crazy idea, a crazier idea, and how to know you're not crazy. All right, let's start with the first one, a crazy idea. This verse, this sentence contains a phrase that if you understand it, is crazy. It's, it's ridiculous, it's spectacular. It's the kind of crazy you would find on junk mail. Do, do you know what I mean? 
Like this week, I went to the mailbox to get the mail. My 13-year-old son was with me. And one of the things I got was that coupon envelope they send you full of coupons for new windows or siding or whatever on your house. And on the front of the envelope, it said, uh, somebody has $500 in their envelope. And my son said, dad, 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 we could have $500. And I said, let me see that. And he handed it to me and I threw it in the trash. Actually, I'm not a monster. I threw it in the recycling, okay? And he said, don't you want $500? And I said, son, there is not $500 in there. I guess joke's on me, if there was. My point is, we get mail like that all the time, email and physical mail, that promises something we know is too good to be true. Well, that's the kind of claim that this verse has for us. In fact, if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, would you look with me at the verse, and here's what it says. Romans 4, 5 says this, but believes in him who listens, this is the phrase, who justifies the ungodly. Justifies the ungodly. Now, you might be reading that and think, I, I, I'm missing. Where's the secret $500 in that? Where is the sensational claim? Well, it's easy to miss because this little phrase is using words we don't use very often. So let me explain the words and then maybe we'll start to see together how spectacular this claim is. What does it mean for someone to be ungodly? I don't know what you think of when you hear that. If you're like me, you just think, I don't know what that means, but it can't be me. It must be someone else. But actually what that term means in biblical language is an enemy of God. Someone who is not at all like God. Someone who's not interested in living God's way, listening to God's voice, seeking God's counsel. Even when they know what God wants, they do the opposite. To be ungodly, according to the Bible, is to be the opposite of God. An enemy of God, an opponent of God, someone who ignores God, someone who rejects God, someone who disregards him. Okay, that's what that means. Now, what does justify mean? Well, the word justify means to be made right, to be approved of, to be welcomed, to be embraced, to be accepted. When God justifies someone, he is saying about that person, they are good to me. I believe they are good. I welcome them. I embrace them. I approve of them. I accept them. Let me give you an analogy that will, I think, help this make sense. Uh, this year for my birthday, my wife took me to a music festival in Kentucky. It was one of those weekend-long things where you're outside listening to music. It was to see what she does next year. You know, it's gonna be tough to top that, but I believe in her, she'll get it done, okay? So we go to this music festival and, and she even splurged for the VIP section, okay? Now we are not VIP people. That, probably doesn't surprise you. We, we don't have the money and influence it often takes to be VIPs, but we got to be that way this weekend. And when I was in the VIP section, uh, a lot of people there were the kind of people that are VIPs all the time, okay? It was not special for them. It was just like a way of life, but it was special for me because I'm never a VIP. So I found myself at times putting my hands in my pocket, just hoping somebody would ask me if I was supposed to be there, you know? 
because they gave us these little wristbands and one wristband said, I don't have COVID. And the other one said, I can get in. And the third one said VIP. And so I just put my hand in my pocket and I would just say, I dare somebody to ask me if I'm supposed to be here. Because excuse me, sir, this is the VIP section. I would say, oh, well, that's, uh, that's great because boom, I am a VIP, <laughs> right? Listen, what justification means is it's God giving a person a bracelet that says, God loves me, God welcomes me, God accepts me, God approves of me. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. This is how God feels. That's what it means to be justified. Now listen to the verse again. Believes in him who is passing out VIP bracelets to his enemies. Well, that sounds like $500 in an envelope full of coupons. God is in the business of finding people who are opposite of him, opponents of him, enemies of him, who disregard him, who ignore him, who disobey him, and he is in the habit of handing to them his approval, his love, his affection, his embrace, his acceptance. God is the God, the God of the Bible is the God who justifies the ungodly. Now, that's a crazy idea. That doesn't sound like the God we grew up with. It doesn't sound like the pop culture view of God, which is this angry God who's, who's mad and has rules and regulations. This is a God who justifies the ungodly. And I just want to stop here for a second and say this because just as I've been preparing this week to, to speak, I've had a particular person on my mind, and that is someone who's here this weekend watching online or here and saying, uh, God could never love me. This is an important phrase for you. Because you say, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know my story. You don't know what I've been a part of. You don't know what I did this weekend. You don't know what I did last night. You don't know what I was just daydreaming about. You don't know who I am. If there is a God, he could never love me. I am so, so, well, let me offer a word for you. So ungodly. And yet, what does this verse say? God is in the habit of justifying the ungodly. So if you, you came in this morning saying, I'm so ungodly and I'm around all these godly people, first of all, get to know us before you label us, okay? First of all. But second of all, second of all, listen, listen, listen. This is a phrase for you because you're saying I don't deserve it and this verse is saying God is in the habit of justifying those who don't deserve it because you see where the music festival analogy breaks down is they'll give a VIP bracelet to anybody who pays for it. And if you want to pay the VIP rate, they'll give it to you. But this isn't saying that. What this is saying is that God is in the habit of justifying the ungodly. That's a crazy idea. But here's my second point. It's even crazier. What do you have to do to get justified? Good question. If God is in the habit of, of handing out his approval and his acceptance, his affection, his embrace, if God is in the habit of handing out VIP bracelets, you are welcome in my presence, you are welcome into heaven, I welcome you. If God is in the habit of passing those out to the ungodly, what do the ungodly have to do to get it? That's a fair question. Like I said, the music festival will give you the bracelet if you pay for it. And that makes sense to us, right? When you go on an airplane and you walk past the first class section, you can get bitter about it, but you know what? They'll give you that seat if you want it. You just have to pay more for it. 
If you want to pay, they'll let you sit there. And that idea is the very idea that every single religion brings to the question of justification. How do I know if God will welcome me? How can I be sure that God will accept me? How could I know that God would justify me, that, that he would put a bracelet on me so that when someone says, what are you doing in heaven? I would say, boom, ha, here I am, VIP. God gave me this. What do I have to do to be justified? And it makes sense to us that the answer would be, you gotta pay the freight. And that's what every religion tells us. If you ask Islam, for example, what do I have to do to be justified by God? They'll point you to the five pillars. If you ask Roman Catholicism, what do I have to do to be justified? They'll point you to the sacraments. If you ask Judaism, what do I have to do to be justified? They'll give you the law. If you ask a Buddhist, they will give you the eightfold path. If you ask a Hindu, they'll give you the karmic cycle. Every religion is saying to us, if you want to pay for first class, you can have it. If you want to be justified and you're willing to pay the freight, do the work, achieve the outcome, do the thing, you can have it. But I want you to notice what this phrase says. Again, I know it's crazy, but it's even crazier than you think. Look at what it says right here in the very beginning of the verse. Verse 5. And to the one who does not work. Now, if you have a Bible, I want you to know it is okay to write in your Bible. And if you feel guilty about it, blessing, pastoral blessing. I don't even know if this means anything or if I have that kind of power, but I give it to you. You can write in your Bible, and what I'd love for you to do is underline that phrase, to the one who does not work. You see, what we have in mind here are not sacraments, not the law, not a path, not pillars, not doing of any kind, because if that's what Paul had in mind, he couldn't have said to the one who doesn't work. This is like saying to the one who did not pay for the VIP status, God is passing out a bracelet. Well, wait a minute, hold on. That's even crazier. What do I have to do for God to welcome me? What do I have to do for God to accept me? What do I have to do for God to embrace me, for God to justify me in my ungodliness? And the answer is nothing. Nothing. To the one who does not work. So what is it then that God wants from us? Well, look, it tells us the very next line. This is why it's great. Again, if you have a Bible in front of you, by the way, if you don't have a Bible and you want one, go to the next steps area and tell them to put it on my tab. Okay. It's a gift to you. We have one for you. And then next time you come, bring it with you so you can see it for yourself. Romans 4 verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, but believes in him. In other words, to the one who says no sacraments, no pillars, no path, no karmic cycle, there is nothing I could do to make God love me, welcome me, embrace me, accept me. But the one who says that, but says, but I trust that he is going to do it anyway. That's the one who gets justified. The one who says, it's not about what I do, but it's about believing in what God will do. Now, that word believe is very dangerous, okay? Because 
we use that word to mean something other than what the Bible means, okay? So, so when we, we believe, for example, in Christmas magic, okay? That, that's great. That is not what the Bible means when it says believe. We believe in a lot of things. A lot of us here would say, I believe in God. It makes very little difference in our lives, but hey, you know, sure, yeah, I believe in, in God. But when the Bible uses the word believe in the original language, what it has in mind is not our word believe. Really what it has in mind is our word trust. Now that's a different word, right? We can believe in a lot of things, but we trust in very few things. In fact, to show you the difference between belief and trust, let me use an analogy that many of you will resonate. The difference between belief and trust is the difference between the Browns and the Buckeyes. Let me tell you what I mean. Let me tell you what I mean. So when I watch a Browns game, it is not relaxing. Okay? I mean, it is not. Yeah, amen. It's the first time I've ever gotten an amen at this church. <laughs> That's what it took? Man. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I am not relaxed when I'm watching the Browns. When I, when I watch the Browns, like tonight, inevitably, at 4.15, when the Chargers go up by a field goal or a touchdown, you know, Baker throws it 10 yards over his receiver, whatever happens, I'm going to be freaking out, okay? I'm going to be panicking. I'm all, here we go again. Here we go. I've, I've seen this movie before, you know? And I'm going to be saying things. I almost said yelling things, but I want you to think nicely of me. Saying things at my television, things like, run the ball, Play man-to-man, stop this zone nonsense, right? And it's not that I think they can hear me as much as I think they need the assistance, okay? I'm just thinking somehow this would get through to them, right? I'm never at rest when I'm watching the Browns because I believe in them, but I do not trust them, okay? I have 38 years of experience of not finding them trustworthy. And so I'm always feeling like I have to contribute. I'm always feeling like I have to supply ideas. I, I can't change my shirt if they're ahead. I have to change my shirt if they're behind. You know, I got to sit in the right seat, right? I believe that I've got to contribute because I believe in them, but I don't trust them. Now, when I watch the Buckeyes, totally different experience. Yesterday, they played Maryland. I mean, if you can call it that, right? And they were down by a field goal to start the game. And I never panicked. I never panicked. I never panicked. And I didn't need to because they went on to win, I think, 66 to 17. I turned it off because I don't watch abuse on television. <laughs> because you see, I trust the Buckeyes. They don't lose to Maryland. Okay, I never worried about it. Never worried about it. Totally different experience, right? So here's what this verse is saying to the one who knows they cannot possibly contribute anything to God, but trusts him to do what they cannot do for themselves, he justifies. You see, the biblical message is not the same as any of the religions I mentioned earlier, which are saying, here's what you must do. Biblical Christianity begins by going, there's nothing I can do. I don't have any work. Biblical Christianity begins by saying, if there is such a thing as a category of the ungodly, I belong there. I live my own way, not God's way. Even when I know what God wants, it's not what I do. It's not what I think. It's not what I feel. I live life my own way. I don't have anything. And you can give me a karmic cycle. You can give me sacraments. You can give me pillars. You can give me a path. I will not 
accomplish what you want me to accomplish. I'm too in tune with myself. And yet, here's my crazy idea. God can do it for me. I don't have to be able to do it. God can do it for me. I trust him. I'm trusting in him. In fact, biblical Christianity is like walking up to the the music festival, believing that the person putting on the festival has a VIP bracelet for you. You didn't pay for it. You didn't earn it. You can't accomplish it. But when you get there, he's going to have it for you. You trust him. And what this verse is saying, this sentence that can change your life, what it's saying is that God is not in the business of justifying doers. He's in the business of justifying those who trust him to do for them. I need you to understand that. That's a pretty massive claim. In other words, what it's saying is that when God looks out over the world, he doesn't divide people into these categories, religious and irreligious moral and immoral, high character and low character. Those are not his categories. These are his categories. Trusts me or doesn't trust me. Trusts me or doesn't trust me. Trusts themselves and their religion and their doing and their being or trusts me to justify them in spite of their ungodliness. In fact, look at the last part of this verse. Look at what it says. Even crazier. Here's what it says. And to the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his trust, his faith, his belief is counted as righteousness. In other words, here's what God is saying. If you trust me, to make you righteous, if you trust me to make you lovable, to make you acceptable, to make you welcomable, if you trust me to make you someone who belongs in heaven, I will do it. It's already done. Just trust me. So here's my question. Do you trust him like that? I didn't ask you if you believe in God. Belief and trust are not the same thing. I didn't ask you if you believe in God, believe in heaven, believe in life after death. I asked you if you are trusting that God himself is going to do everything necessary to make you someone who belongs in heaven. That God himself is going to do everything that needs to be done for you to be lovable and welcomable and embraceable to him. Because that is biblical Christianity. And my fear for you as a pastor is that you might confuse church attendance and habit and ritual and a vague belief in a vague God as somehow enough to bring you into right relationship with God. In fact, you might be sitting here every week going, why don't I feel more? Why don't I feel connected to God more? And it's because vague, habitual, ritualistic religion will never connect you to God. Because what's it say? To the one who does not work. Because you see, it's either you you trust in, which is religion, or God you trust in, which is faith. And God is dividing people not based on church attendance. He's dividing people based on whether or not they trust him. So do you? Would you? Will you? 
I don't know if I'm supposed to tell you this, but in a few weeks we have baptism coming up. I've been praying for you because I just think so many of you are ready to take the step from showing up to trusting God to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And I know what you're asking. You're saying, well, well, if I were going to trust that, that God is somehow going to welcome and accept and embrace and love me, even though I'm ungodly, how, how would I ever believe that trusting that isn't crazy? How is that any different than grabbing the envelope and saying to your spouse, we can go buy that piece of furniture you're looking for because somewhere in these coupons is $500. How would I ever know that I'm not being foolish, that I'm not being crazy, that I'm not being ridiculous? Well, that's my third point, how to know you're not crazy. And there are two ways in this passage to know you're not crazy for believing that God will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. The first one is the story of Abraham. If you read Romans 4, it's all about Abraham, and it's about how Abraham shows this to us. You probably know the name Abraham, but here's some things you may not know. In the very beginning of his story in the Bible, in Genesis 12, his name isn't Abraham, it's Abram. And in fact, he comes right after a group of people began to build a tower to the sky, the Tower of Babel. And their idea was, this is a pretty killer idea, is that we're going to build a tower so high that when we stand on the top of it, we will be like God. And then we will get to be in charge of everything. It was a crazy idea. It was a rebellious idea. It was a pagan idea. And God gets so angry, he actually causes the plan to fail. They abandon the plan because God causes it to fail. And then we meet a guy named Abram. I don't think it's a stretch to say that Abram is an out-of-work construction worker whose last job was the Tower of Babel. His father's name is Tehran, which is representative of a pagan moon god. So here we have this out-of-work construction worker whose last job was trying to make himself God, whose father worships the moon god. And in Genesis 12, God, the real God, not the moon god, speaks to Abram. And this is what he says, start walking, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You say, well, why did God choose Abram? Well, I can tell you why he didn't choose him religious background, high moral character. By the way, you ever read the story of Abraham? I mean, the guy will end up pimping out his wife, sleeping with her handmaiden. He does some pretty dark stuff. No, God didn't choose him because of his moral character. God chose an ungodly man because he trusted not in Abram, but in what he would do for Abraham. And Abraham struggles to believe God throughout the story because after all, he looks in the mirror, he looks at God, he looks in the mirror, he looks at God and he goes, man, how could I ever be sure? And so God continues to show up in the life of Abraham, giving him a sign after sign after sign. Here's how you know you can trust me. Here's how you know you can believe. But the biggest sign he gives him is that when God speaks to Abram, Abram is an old man married to an older woman and they cannot, they have not had children and they cannot have children. And God says, I'm going to do for you what you can not do for yourself. And they get pregnant and they, they give birth to a son named Isaac. And Isaac is the ultimate indication, the ultimate sign that God can be trusted, that God will do for Abraham what Abraham could not do for himself. So that anytime Abraham wonders, how could God love me? How could God welcome me? How could God accept me? How could God justify me? Anytime he wonders, all he's got to do is hold Isaac and go, here's how I know. 
God gave me a son. But Isaac's significance isn't in what he means to Abraham. His significance is what he means to you. Because Isaac grows up to become the great, 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 bunch of greats in there, grandfather of Jesus. Jesus is the son of promise. Jesus is the one godly man. Jesus is the one guy who always does life God's way. So that if God did divide the world into obedient people and disobedient people, it would be everyone who's ever lived and Jesus. And yet Jesus Christ goes to the cross and on the cross, he tells us that what he's doing is shedding his blood and having his body broken as punishment for our unrighteousness. And he dies. And three days later, he raises from the dead and he says to us, if you will trust me, if you'll grab hold of me, if you'll listen to me, follow me, then I am the proof that God justifies the ungodly because I lived in your place and I died in your place and I rose from the dead. So if you get behind me, God, when he looks at you, won't see you, he'll see me. Jesus is the one who proves to us that Romans 4, 5 is crazy spectacular, but not crazy untrue. Let's read it again. Romans 4, verse 5 says this. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, him being Jesus, the justifier who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. You see, even here this morning, no matter what you've done this weekend, no matter what your story is, if you grab hold of Jesus, your trust in Jesus will be to God as though you lived a perfect life. He will give you the VIP bracelet, not because you earned it and you paid for it, but because Jesus did on your behalf. But the hardest, can I tell you something, in suburban Cleveland, the hardest part of this message is the very first part of the sentence where you begin by saying, I do not work. I cannot contribute to this. God doesn't care about the car I drive, the house I live in, the marriage I have, the kids I have, the job I have, how much money I've given. He's not impressed by that. I am an ungodly person, but God in his great love and mercy has sent Jesus. And by trusting him, his life in my place, his death in my place, his resurrection, I can be forgiven. But if you're here and you're a Christian, I know, again, this is another week where you're like, I know all this. Man, look, I do this professionally. And there are a lot of days I don't know this. You know how you know if you really are grabbing hold of this? Do you know how you know? You know how you measure it? Rest. Rest. It's the difference between watching the Browns and the Buckeyes. I watch the Browns, I need a nap afterwards. My wife says, You just watched a football game. And I said, I know, I'm exhausted because I'm never at rest. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how tired are you right now? How anxious are you right now? How unsettled are you right now? Can I, can I lovingly, pastorally challenge you that every time we drift from Romans 4, 5, we will become exhausted. 
But the Christian life is meant to be one of rest because all the work that has to be done, he's already done, he is doing, and he will do. It's Jesus who lived and died for us. It's Jesus who gives us his Holy Spirit. It's Jesus who tells us in Revelation 21, behold, I, not you, I, not we, I am making all things new. It's Jesus, I'm trusting you. Do you know what this is like? This is like driving with the GPS. Do you do this? I've lived here almost three years. I don't go anywhere without putting the GPS. Some days I come to work, I just put the GPS in. I don't know how to get anywhere, right? I don't know how to get anywhere. But you know why I do that? You know why I like GPS? It's not like I put the GPS and the car drives itself. I mean, that will one day happen, okay? But it isn't yet. I gotta drive. But when I drive, I'm totally relaxed. I know how to drive. What I don't always know is how to get where I wanna go. So I'm driving, but someone else who knows how to get there is telling me where to go. I can't think of a better metaphor for the Christian life. It's not that we don't obey. It's not that we don't chase after the Lord. It's not that we don't surrender. But everything we do is anxiety-free because everything he asks of us, he knows where he's going. So here's my challenge for you this week. I told you every week in this series, you get a challenge. Here's my challenge. Rest. Rest. Sit on your front porch. Go for a walk. Take a nap. And before you rest, pray that God would give you an opportunity to let someone know that this is what your church wants you to do. You're not being told to give. You're not being told to serve. You're not being told. I mean, we'll do that later, but not now. Just want you to rest. But when you rest, I want you to say this. God, thank you so much that I don't have to work right now because everything that I need to be welcomed and embraced and justified by you has already been done for me by Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father God, again, I, I feel like I say this every week, but this isn't even for them. This is just me and you talking. It's such a, an amazing thing to get to stand up here and say such spectacular things about you such wonderful things about you. I, I know people, if I got up here and said, you have to do this to go to heaven, people would try to do it. I mean, that would, they would resonate with that. What an amazing thing that I get to stand up here and say, all you gotta do is trust, just trust Jesus. He'll, he'll do it for you. But saying it's one thing, making it's true, that, making it true, that's your thing. And we praise you for that. What a great God you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.